Hi, I'm Adam Phillips, and I love comics. Sure, I love superhero comics, but I also love comics that are funny, or romantic, or educational, or even kind of filthy. Some have been around for decades, but I have a special place in my heart for the ones that came and went in the blink of an eye. We call them one-shots, and some of them you may have heard of, while others might make you ask, why? This is One-Shot Wonders. Hey everybody, welcome to One Shot Wonders with Adam Phillips. We've got a cool episode this week, it's going to be fun, and our guest is Joseph Illage, who is an old buddy and somebody I've known for a long time as an editor at DC Comics, working on the Batman books. He's currently the executive editor for Heavy Metal Magazine, and he started out at Milestone Media, which is so awesome. And you're doing a ton of other stuff. Joe, which is really interesting. Like I, I see your your tweets about the the instructional things and all that. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little about that because I'm not super familiar with it. You're probably best from coming coming from you. All right. Well, thanks for having me. This is great. So one of the things that I do is I have my own business where I work with clients on their pitches their story ideas, navigating through the comic book and graphic novel industry, and freelance editing for whether it's one comic book or a limited series or an original graphic novel. That's really an extension of my career. And right now, because the comic book industry is probably at an unprecedented level of growth in terms of the number of publishers, the variety of different stories that are out there. There are so many people that want to enter the business professionally, but their ideas aren't ready. They don't know the landscape, so they need guidance. They need editorial guidance with their stories to make their stories, their characters, the best that they can be to present those ideas in the best way to pitch to a potential publisher. If you're pitching to a comic book publisher, that's one thing. If you're pitching to a trade book publisher, that's another thing. So working with them on creating the best pitches, when it comes to editorial work, it's really working with them on their creator-owned projects. And Mm -hmm. so that is a good portion of what I do alongside working for different clients, one of which is heavy metal in which I'm the executive editor for the company. So cool. Yeah, man. I mean, it's, that's amazing to me. I've been a a heavy metal fan going back just decades. So it's very cool to see you there. And, you know, also you're a a writer and recently a co-writer on the graphic novel MPLS sound, which came out from uh, humanoids over the summer. Was it right? It came out in mid April. Oh, okay. Yep. And it's such a great book. I really, really liked it a lot. You know, Thank and you it's so much. a love letter to the Minneapolis music scene of the 1980s. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I'd recommend it. And I mean, I was looking at your, you know, Amazon listing and it's like, you got some great reviews. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, the team and I, we all really put a lot of ourselves into it, you know, and it really started with Fabrice Sapolsky, who at the time was a senior editor at Humanoids and a big Prince fan. And so 
the idea for MPLS Sound really came out of his mind. And Hannibal Taboo, who's a music journalist, was the first person involved from a writing standpoint. And then what happened was Fabrice brought me in because he felt like what was there, the nucleus of it, needed to be taken to the next level. Mm. And so I was able to work with Hannibal's intentions with the foundation and really expand on the cast and focus more on the main story of Teresa Booker, who is a Black woman who, when she was a kid, she saw Jimi Hendrix play his guitar in the Dick Cavett show, and it was that moment that changed her life. When she heard that music could sound so beautiful, she knew that she wanted to do that. Mm, But at the time, that was not a feasible option for a Black woman in Minneapolis. And so her father, who was a former musician, told her that there was no future for her as a guitar player, much less a band leader. So her teenage years operated in defiance of that. And she continuously taught herself how to play and she would end up getting her own guitar. And she had another crucial moment in her life where she and a friend saw Prince perform. Mm -hmm. And when she saw that as a full adult right in front of her without the distance of television or anything, she saw the possibility for herself to be on the stage with him and decided to create a band called Star Child and Star Child would engage in competitions with a lot of other Minneapolis bands Mm -hmm. to become Prince's band. So MPLS Sound is the story of how Star Child almost became what the revolution did become. And why did they not become that? And so it's historical fiction, which is deeply rooted in the early 80s history of Minneapolis, which is crucial to music as we understand it. Oh, yeah. Crucial to culture as we understand it. Yeah, definitely. Because of, you know, your work on on this book and your connection to Milestone, of course, I thought this would be a great opportunity for us to talk about the comic book Prince Alter Ego. Right. Written by Dwayne McDuffie, illustrated by Dennis Cowan. And Kent Williams, and I cannot leave out coloring it by uh, Noel Giddings because right. man, the coloring is is a key player in this thing. One hundred percent, because and you know, very similar to how the colorist Tan Shu approached MPLS Sound, where if you're dealing with prints, you're dealing with the color purple, right? Yeah, that's going to be a core color that is going to define the atmosphere, the mood of a number of scenes. And so the same way that, you know, Dennis and Kent and Noel worked together as a team and how color played so much of a part in the visual identity of that book, 
that's the same way that with MPLS Sound, Meredith Laxton, and Tan Shu really gel together to do the same thing. Absolutely. This book, any of these books in black and white, it's not the same. When you're talking about prints, you've got to bring in the color. Yeah, for sure. So, okay, this comic uh, was published October 22nd, 1991. Hey, that's like almost exactly 30 years ago from the day we're recording. How about that? That is amazing. And I will say it's kind of funny. Like, there's... I don't know what was going on at DC at the time, but like it's called Prince Alter Ego, but the cover just says Prince. <laughs> it doesn't say Alter right, Ego. Right, right, right. It's funny. It's like, I don't know why, but it's, you know, a spectacular cover by Brian Bolland that I think is really iconic. Everybody recognizes it, you know? And absolutely. It's a great story. It's about the recording business and playing business in Minneapolis. One of the things that's really interesting about it to me is that the way. It was approached from a writing standpoint, which is an omniscient narrator really looking at prints from a distance, right? So that person becomes us, the reader, and it immediately starts off with Prince returning home to Minneapolis, right? So that's just an interesting position to put him in because due to the nature of his career, of course he had to travel, but him coming back home and having to deal with a conflict there, not only a conflict in the industry, but a conflict of perspective where people are asking him, who is he to be telling them how to do their business? Yeah. yeah. Right. So it's that interesting theme of like the prodigal son returns home Mm -hmm. so being able to use that with prince allowed the readers to be introduced to the whole minneapolis scene because i remember myself growing up i remember seeing purple rain in the theaters and i listened to prince's music but i did not have the knowledge at the time whatsoever of what the Minneapolis music scene was like. Yeah, yeah. I assume you were uh, East Coast. Absolutely. You know, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Uh And so working on MPLS Sound and thinking about, you know, Prince Alter Ego really speaks to the idea of being able to pull people into this world and give them a sense of how this is really history. It's not only musical history, it's cultural history because so many roads lead back to Prince and Minneapolis, whether you're talking about, you know, producers like the legendary Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who would go on to shape and galvanize the careers of people such as Janet Jackson, Mm -hmm. or you're talking about how Prince's darling Nikki upset Tipper Gore, which led to the creation of the mature warning labels on albums and CDs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So 
many things come back to Prince and the orbit of people around him. That's amazing. And, you know, I was just thinking about this because this is really like a milestone production in terms of the uh, talent working on it. And I just absolutely it just occurred to me, like, oh, let me take a look. This comic came out um, a couple of years before Milestone was launched. Yes, it did. But these guys are really locked in. I don't know where Dwayne and Dennis might have worked together in other places, but, you know, they're a real solid team, obviously. And 100%. I feel like the first time they worked together would have been the Deathlock miniseries. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Or Marvel, which would then lead to the Deathlock series. Yeah, And that was the beginning of their relationship, I believe, which would then be solidified in different ways because they did this together and then they were going on parallel career tracks. Mm -hmm. Dennis was working on um, Batman, right? you know, with the Sam Hamm storyline, Blind Justice, Sam Hamm being the screenwriter for the Tim Burton Batman film. Mm -hmm. And Dwayne was working on various characters at Marvel and Dwayne had started as an editor at Marvel before becoming a writer there. And so Milestone just seemed to be the kind of thing that brought their talents together in a way that was set up by their previous projects. But when you look at that first issue of Hardware, which was the first Milestone comic and which they both did together, there's something about that that really shows how those two guys were in sync. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's something that happens developing the relationship over time. The kind of synergy that Dwayne and Dennis had is the kind of synergy that Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips have on their various projects. Yeah, absolutely. So it's something that's created over time. And the Prince comic book, you know, as you pointed out, is an interesting precursor Mm. to Milestone. Yeah, for sure. And it really shows, you know, that there was absolutely no reason not to have a comic with a cast full of people of all sorts of colors. And it just, you know, there were decades of comics history without that. And then this came along and just, and of course, Milestone afterward, it just showed there was no reason not to have that all along. It's it's great. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's in it's a very important like piece of the puzzle of comic book history because mm-hmm. milestone changed comic books and culture as we understand it based upon the static shock cartoon and its impact yeah. in popular culture and with many people's lives and so the books leading up to milestone and especially a book like prince which had these two people come together to tell a story about this iconic figure in a way that had to be fresh and couldn't be exactly like anything you've read before. Mm -hmm. That's really amazing. It's really amazing to see that kind of through line. Yeah, really is. I kind of wonder um, from another angle, I kind of wonder like 
I don't remember ever hearing that Prince was a comics fan, but he must have been for you know this kind of project to go forward. Have do you do you know? Are you aware of anything like that? It's a good question. I yeah. honestly don't know. I know yeah. you know him so growing private. up as a teenager. He was definitely first off. Not only was he musically talented, but he was athletically talented. He was oh, really? amazing as a basketball player. Huh. Right. Wow. So just thinking about like black kids in the seventies in Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I don't know if he was a comic book fan, but considering his, I think his understanding of these different cultural forces and how he was so brilliant at shaping his identity as an entertainer, as a, musician as a producer and the way he brought people together and the fact that he utilized the language of code names when people became part of his entourage he oh, yeah. gave them code names right he had <laughs> them dressed flamboyantly he dressed flamboyantly so he was using the language of comic books he was using the language of the superhero genre right mm -hmm. and so i wouldn't be surprised if as a young right. person he did read comic books because yeah, and that's a great insight you know yeah he yeah. he was a master at understanding how to take people and make them mythical in the mm -hmm. eyes of the public, right? Yeah. Especially himself, right? right? He was his own primary subject for experimentation, right? Mm -hmm. And what he learned about himself, he then extended to others. Really interesting, yeah. And... You know, there's also the question of like, well, how did a project like this come about? But obviously he had, an, you know, a relationship with Warner Brothers, which was, you know, the owners of DC Comics. He had, right. in 1989, he had done the um, music for the first Batman Tim Burton movie. And, yes, he did. And in the mid-1980s, he did those couple of movies, which were both Warner Brothers releases, I believe. And then Graffiti Bridge was right. right. Was in nineteen ninety. So under the Cherry Moon, right? Yeah. Graffiti Bridge, right. So you know, there's there's a relationship there with the studio. So somehow that got fed up back to DC and resulted in this great comic. And it's still, you know, it's using the iconography of Purple Rain with the motorcycle at the beginning, and obviously the the Minneapolis setting. It really picks Absolutely. up on those threads. And I'm yeah. sure that was intentional, right? Because yeah. if you're talking about a book like this, then above and beyond the comic book aficionado, who was probably not the primary target for this mm -hmm. or considered the primary audience, the primary audience was likely the layperson, right? And so yeah. the layperson would know Prince from Purple Rain. Right. So the fact of that kind of visual identification 
I'm sure that was something that was strategic and purposeful. Sure. And, you know, the confluence where the music industries and the comic book industries come together, this was really a primary example of that. We certainly have others. We have, you know, Marvel's KRS-One comic with Kyle Baker. We have the... Jimi Hendrix graphic novel Voodoo Child Mm -hmm. that was illustrated by Bill Sienkiewicz. So Prince Alter Ego, I think, really represented this seminal point in comic book history where you could see how this comes together well, right? And, you know, speaking to what you were saying about his relationship with Warner Brothers, which after a while would go sour, as uh-huh. we know, but at this time, it you know was obviously in a good place. If you look, you mentioned the Brian Bolland cover. Brian Bolland is still one of the top cover artists, so mm-hmm. Prince must have had to approve the people who are involved. Oh, and I'm sure. That's another reason why it's entirely feasible that he was familiar with comic books because there were so many different creators but that's the one that ends up doing the cover this guy who is not coincidentally at the time probably one of the top three cover illustrators in the industry period yeah yeah, definitely. Yeah, the whole pro- the whole um, package is copyrighted to Paisley Park, you know, which is because, I mean, the first thing I did when we decided we would talk about this was I went to see if it was on Comixology, and it's not. And, of course, that makes sense because uh, DC doesn't own the copyright to it. So, um, you know, I hunted down a copy, of course. It wasn't terribly difficult. Let's talk a little about the story. I, you know, the Gemini character is really interesting. You know, it's almost comic book action in here like even though they're musicians and stuff they're really getting into you know almost like a batman fight scene or two it's funny it is you know well basically what it does is it takes the competitive nature of the minneapolis music scene and then it amplifies it right because you're talking battles of the bands Uh uh-huh right so you are talking competition and musical wars and you are talking people have their their abilities tested having their manhood challenge <laughs> and so right so they basically just knock that up a notch but yeah. they use the competitive nature of the scene of that music scene as the nucleus and you know, having a character who is your opposite number, uh-huh. something like that, you know, that's always dramatic because it basically is a mirror reflection, right? Where if you had gone down a certain path, this would have been you. Yep. Right? And then what you're dealing with is you're dealing with two compelling characters. You're dealing with the person who's identified as the hero of the story But then you're dealing with the person who represents that hero in a different way and who is an equally, if not more, compelling character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
right? Because they say your villains have to be more interesting than your heroes. True. Right? Mm -hmm. So the character of Gemini had to be someone as compelling as Prince, especially since we are meeting Gemini at the same time Prince is meeting Gemini, Mm -hmm. right? Because again, this story having an omniscient narrative basically then makes that experience, that narrative perspective, our perspective. Prince is going back home to Minneapolis. We're going on the journey with him. Yes. So Gemini's existence, you know, it's a brilliant way of taking the superhero story dynamic and applying it to this urban world of like sounds and competition and culture and Mm -hmm. street cred all of it yeah right it's really it's really amazing yeah it's a lot of fun and uh you know like i said it looks great i mean dennis i i don't know i i love his work he's uh never misses (laughs) part of what's amazing about his work is the fluidity of line yeah right his work is not rigid it doesn't feel like it's obeying the rules his sense of design his line strokes he's breaking rules he's breaking conventions and Mm -hmm. when he works with people who also who also do the same they bring out the best in him in this case it's kent williams a lot of times his regular collaborator these days is Bill Sienkiewicz. You're yeah. talking about people who break the rules, yeah, who go against convention. So that's one of the things that really made this book work. There are a number of artists who would not have given it the energy uh-huh. that it has because Dennis illustrated it. Yeah, definitely. So Piranha Music... Also, I think I mentioned, uh, as we were discussing earlier, Piranha Music did another Prince comic that came out in 1994, April 1994. And I was digging into it, and I you know, I have a copy here. It's, I don't know if you've read it or not, Prince and the New Power Generation, Three Chains of Gold. Wow. I never have read that one. So is, is that a sequel? It's not really a sequel. It's very different. It's like, okay, so Alter Ego is a 32-page comic, and this is 48 pages. But I figured out just this morning it's um, an adaptation of the direct-to-video movie that Prince made with the new power generation called Three Chains of Gold. And it's funny because I was, like, reading yesterday, first of all, reading it and thinking, you know, why why does this character look like Kirstie Alley or whatever? And it's like, oh, she was in the movie. Okay. And there were other um, people who looked vaguely familiar too. They're in the, you know, they were in the movie. They're in this adaptation. So this is written by Dwayne McDuffie, um, with art by David Williams, Steve Carr, and Daryl Skelton. And I mean, David Williams is somewhat familiar to me. The other guy's not really at all. Oh, and then Joe Rubenstein inked the whole thing, but it looks really great. It, it's it's nothing like what Dennis drew, of course. It's but it's very nice looking. It's a little like um, Chris Sprouse, that kind of look. Interesting. You know? 
slick, nice looking. Anyway, so yeah, it turns out it's this adaptation, which I thought was funny because there's nothing in this comic that indicates it's an adaptation, like nothing. Wow. I do not. I don't understand why they wouldn't have put something in here to say, "Hey, watch this thing. You can get the the DVD or whatever and watch it." Or I don't know. I'm not sure. Now how I'm interested really in exploring it further. I worked with David Williams for a short time when I worked at DC in the Batman editorial department. Oh yeah. David did Robin covers for us, and he came highly recommended by mm-hmm. Mark Chiarello. And it's funny because David's latest work is a comic book on the historical Texas lawman Bass Reeves. So it's interesting how David's career goes back and forth between fictional characters and actually real people like Prince and Bass Reeves. So that's that's fascinating to learn that he was one of the illustrators, if not the main illustrator of that second Prince comic. I didn't know that. It says he he did about half the book. Okay. So, yeah, it's really cool. Oh, and the cover's by a guy named Steve Park. Hmm. Um, it's sort of a painterly cover. Anyway, yeah, I don't know his work really either. But anyway, so I just thought I'd mention, like, second one shot, but it is an adaptation of a movie. And it's funny because before I realized, you know, that, oh, wait, this is from a movie, I was looking at this and kind of feeling like, well, Alter Ego is kind of a like a hard day's night. It's about actually playing music and stuff. And then Three Chains of Gold is like help because it's like, oh, exotic settings and crazy, you know, international intrigue. It's not, you know, nearly as down to earth as Alter Ego, but it's still a lot of fun. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. And then, of course, it turns out, well, it's from a movie. So, you know, the the parallel doesn't hold up quite as well as I thought it did. Right, (laughs) right, right. It's funny. Yeah, and I'm also thinking about how the first book, you know, as you pointed out, the first book came out in 1991. So, you know, it advertised um, the new album from Prince and the new power generation. And I remember that was when I graduated out of college in 1990. So Mm. those were my pre-milestone years in which I was exposed to Prince's work again through that album and was reading the works of seminal authors like Samuel Delaney. So Mm. it's really interesting to look at these comic books in relation to just like a personal timeline, but also a timeline as it relates to Prince's career, how the, the comic book is not an isolated thing, right? It's intertwined with an album release it has a timing to it so it's all Mm -hmm. very interesting just being able to look at it from a distance now and see it from that bird's eye view right definitely well i think you know alter ego in particular it stands as a real singular classic comic and a lot of that is due to that that phenomenal cover i mean it's just unforgettable but you know the whole the whole package really holds up well and is kind of a, a you know, such a memorable story and everything. Definitely. But, you know, you're talking comic books. It starts with the cover. That's the first thing you're going to see because that's what's going to pull you in. So 
they had to make sure it was top notch. And the fact that I imagine for various reasons, they didn't want to use a photograph. They had to have somebody who could get so close to reality, but it would still have an artistic quality that would define it as an illustration. Uh-huh. And there's no one better no. than Brian Bolland when you're talking about that. Certainly not at this time, you know? I think comics, art, and covers have come such a long way even since then. And there's so many great illustrators out there who, you know, conceivably could do this kind of thing now. But, you know, at the time, Bolland was absolutely the top guy. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. Cool. Anything else you want to say about this comic? No, I mean, <laughs> like you said, it's a really, it's a, it's a singular work. And I feel like, you know, what Humanoids did as a publisher by doing MPLS Sound, that traces back, again, to the history of music comics. So in a way, we were able to tell our story because that book was there. Yeah. Right? And there's a straight line. And so is just another reason why I can appreciate the groundbreaking work that Dwayne and Dennis did, not only with Milestone, which is of course where my career started, but also mm-hmm. in that way with the Prince comic book. Cool. Can I ask you about Milestone for a minute? Sure. Cause you, how did you get started with them? You were an assistant editor, right? I really started as an intern. I started oh, okay. at the bottom you know, in a sense, in the vertical sense of when you come into a company, you know, you're starting at the point where you're not even really making a wage because we're talking the early 90s. So that's what internships were like. And I started as an intern and learned everything about the business from the founders, right? You had Derek T. Dingle, who was a president, you know, Dwayne McDuffie, editor-in-chief, Dennis Cowan was a creative director, I believe. Then Michael Davis was in charge of business development. And the four of them, they were the four founders. And then you also had Christopher Priest was a fifth founder, but he would end up leaving before Milestone started publishing their comic books in February of 1993. So I started as an intern. And then from there, I worked my way to a part-time job as the assistant to the president. Mm. And so working alongside Derek Dingle, I learned what the business infrastructure of Milestone was. So from a creative standpoint, it's the Dakota universe and it's the line of comic books and different genres that reflect their superhero universe. What's the business underneath all of that, right? Mm. Which isn't considered glamorous, but it's definitely required knowledge, right? It's integral, you know, all creativity at a certain point for it to go to the next level, it's funded by a business infrastructure. It's supported by that. So I started as an employee in that role. And then I would transition from business to editorial 
I believe it was 1995 when I made the lateral move to editorial. And then that was when I started learning under the tutelage of Dwayne and also Matt Wayne, who was an editor at Milestone as well. And so that was where my editorial education and career began. That was really cool. So I wonder if we met back then because I came to visit Milestone probably in 1993 or four when I was working at Welsh Publishing Group. I was editing Superman and Batman magazine. We did an insert in a Superman Batman issue for about Milestone. Yes, we did. I think yeah. we did meet in 94 yeah. and I don't even know if it was because specifically of that book or well, what happened was you know, we did the Worlds Collide crossover. Oh, yeah. With the Milestone characters and the Superman portion of the DC universe. And I remember we had a big get-together at the Milestone offices because the Milestone offices were three big lots that were all right. interconnected. And we had a big gathering. And, you know, just like, you know, the – the DC Universe characters and the Milestone Universe characters came together. DC staffers, including <laughs> yourself, I think, were there at the Milestone offices with us. And it was just this cool coming together of the yeah. partners and a meet and greet. So I'm confident that we <laughs> met during that time wow. because when I would end up going to DC Comics later, you and I already had that relationship. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure of it. To this day, I have that Superman Batman magazine with static in it. Ah, nice. Yeah. 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 Dennis did the cover. Yeah. And I still have a copy of that magazine. Yeah. And so, yeah, I feel like 1994 is when we would have met for the first time. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, yeah, I I worked with Dwayne. I was, unfortunately, I was the guy who had to like, read all for a couple of years had to read all the milestone comics and then if um if i had a question about something i would have to go to paul levitz and say uh, is this okay and occasionally i would have to call Dwayne back and say is there any way you could change this i'm sorry uh, <laughs> oh, man, I mean, which is not easy oh I'm, I'm i'm sure not you know it's yeah. it's just part of the process right it's yeah. part of the business partnerships that a lot of people don't know about and they think it's all glamorous. It's like, no, there are all these moving parts yeah. that happen in the relationship, right? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I'm sure that was, you know, a learning experience for you too because sure. something like Milestone, I think, was unprecedented at DC at the time. I don't think they'd ever done anything quite like that. Usually when DC was publishing characters, they would acquire them, right? Yeah like the way they acquired the rights to the Charlton characters. Yeah, yeah. Right? So that's a different type of a a business integration, but this was dealing with a company that was its own animal. And even Mm -hmm. for the first three years to four years of the relationship was geographically separate, right? Because we were in Chelsea. Right. The original Milestone offices we're on 23rd Street between 6th and 7th Avenues in Manhattan. 119 West 23rd Street. And at that time, 
I believe DC at that time was at 1700 Broadway. I don't know because obviously there was an address before 1700 Broadway. Yeah. Was it 666 Fifth Avenue? Uh, between then, there was 1325 Avenue in the Americas, maybe? That's right. That's yeah. right. So I was only there for a few months before they moved to 1700 Broadway. Yeah. So I feel like you guys were already at 1700 mm. by the time Milestone started publishing. Wow. Yeah. I think so. Mm, sounds about right. Cool. Well, look at that. We've established our our credentials. Hey, listen, listen. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm proud of I'm proud of the credentials. That's a good line of activity. Yeah. From 1993 to now, like we're almost at the 30th anniversary of Milestone, and as you pointed out, we're at the 30th anniversary of the Prince comic. That's amazing. Yeah, too funny that we're recording it right now. I I didn't notice that even until just a few minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. That turned out to be fortuitous. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's great talking, Joe, and um, I hope to see you one of these days in person. Same here. We will catch up in the new year when we're further along in the status of the world, but it's really great being here. I really enjoyed just talking about everything Prince and just how MPLS sound and the Prince comic book, just the historical through line and the through line between that and Milestone. It's just always great to be able to see the interconnectivity like that. Absolutely. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. You're welcome. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to One Shot Wonders. I'll be back next week with another One Shot comic. Meanwhile, hit the subscribe button, leave me a review, tell your friends, and go buy some comics.